welcome to Science and Pictures Presents Science in Podcast, a podcast where we read and interpret cool scientific papers uh, and talk about them so you don't have to. This week, I am here uh, once again with Becca, the founder of Science and Pictures, and our subject this week is space. So, <laughs> yes, a very here. What's up? The final frontier. The final frontier. I thought you were mimicking air, which is non-existent in space, so you were kind of being ironic. Uh, but yeah. Um, are we ready to start? Would you like to go first? Because I've been going first this whole time. I was just thinking that. Um, I was thinking that maybe you should just always go first. <laughs> I can go first if you want. Let me get yeah. my articles in order. Um, okay. Because I'm not going to tangent, but since we love to talk about things a long 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 time ago i thought this was this paper that i'm referencing isn't proving anything brand new but it's just like reinforcing um the age of a distant galaxy so i went into looking into a little bit more about the telescopes being used to find this and it's just to me really fascinating because it is just it borders on the plane of our understanding and our comprehension and it just like there is no possible life form probably in the universe that can fathom the age of this galaxy i'm a little scared but okay let's go okay so this talks about the farthest galaxy in the universe and oh sorry what is the title of your paper the title of my paper is Evidence for GNZ11 as a Luminous Galaxy at Redshift 10.957. I'll give you two minutes to guess as to what that means. I was hoping that you were going to tell me because I have no idea. Okay. And in the meantime, I'll try and think of a brand new title, but I'm not really good at being witty in that way. So, <laughs> um, so this talks about the farthest gal galaxy in the universe that we know of right now. And again, this paper isn't necessarily discovering this galaxy. That was done a few years ago. But it's just, as we talked about last time, um, it's reinforcing kind of, like assumptions, basically. Um, so so this is like the largest, sorry, the furthest galaxy that we can actually pick up on like telescopes? Yes, okay. but not telescopes on Earth. Well, Space that's telescope. not true. That's not true. Because um, this article was done out of the University of Tokyo, and they did use a telescope on Earth. Um, it's the Keck-1 telescope, K-E-C-K. -E and, like, obviously that's on planet Earth. But it was, the galaxy was originally photographed and seen. I shouldn't say photographed. The, the galaxy was originally seen by the Hubble telescope in space, right? Jared, do you know anything about the Hubble Telescope? I know that it exists and is called the Hubble Telescope. I always have it in, like, the back of my head to learn about it, but no, please tell me. Okay, so the Hubble Telescope, I think, when people ask you, like, what's the greatest technology development, like, ever, I think the Hubble Telescope is definitely up there. Um, okay. It's just, the things it can see out in the distance is phenomenal um and i should have prepped this with like a little more history um so so wait would you say that the hubble telescope saying what you said that it's like the biggest technological achievement does not it the match biggest. Up well okay 
I was going to ask if it matches up well to, like, newer telescopes. Well, it's, other than being just, like, upgraded, it went into uh, Earth orbit in 1990. Now, really? yeah, in 1990, think of, like, huh. the computers we had back then. And, like, obviously the internet and the technology we have now for our everyday use is pretty phenomenal. Right. But the things this sees and the technology, excuse me, the technology that has evolved around trying to be able to interpret the things it sends back to us is just so cool. Um, it's the only telescope designed to be maintained in space by astronauts. So it's not just like a one shot launch. Like the again, like I said, the idea is it is for it to be repaired, upgraded um replace so cool. systems on there uh so it's uh, it's a beautiful piece of technology anyway um i'm gonna tangent for a little bit this <laughs> telescope can see into really really dark and far spaces into space one of my favorite images ever produced from the hubble telescope was done almost kind of by accident so these scientists at NASA, these researchers, there is in the night sky, and it, you would never be able to tell just by looking at the night sky with your naked eye, for the most part, because of light pollution, things like that. But in right. the night sky, from the perspective of Earth, there is a dark spot that seems to have nothing in it, which you think in space would be easy to find, but it's really kind of rare. There's something all around us, right? The Big Bang was big explosion. It threw things everywhere. So there's right. this kind of big black spot. So some scientists wanted to just like point the Hubble telescope in that direction and see what was there. And other people thought that this was kind of a waste of time. <laughs> They're like, we have other actual galaxies that we want to research that we're getting like live data from. Can we please use the telescope for real science instead? They're like, it's <laughs> fine. Like, we're not going to take that long. Don't worry. So they did that, and you should take a minute right now to Google the photograph that they took. Just do Hubble what Space Telescope, um, darkest point in the sky. Like, that's all you have to type. Darkest point in the sky. I'm going to type. Uh, <laughs> the first article that pops up is when Hubble stared at nothing for 100 hours. There you go. Uh, See? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just like a lot of galaxies and then empty space. They found the, I, uh, you might have to double check me on this, but if I remember correctly, I researched this a long time ago. They found the spot with the most concentrated area of galaxies, which is nuts, right? Really? In the darkest point of the sky, this is what you found. Um, I think, let me find the number. They haven't, they counted the number of galaxies. You're going to have to do a lot of 3,000. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So that's just, that's like, that's the, what do I want to say? That's the like impact that the Hubble telescope can make. Right. Okay. So. Not that I spend like a lot of time thinking about space because existential crises and everything, but like, I didn't know there was 3,000 galaxies, period. Oh my gosh. They just found 3,000 in this dark spot. Yeah. Okay, this, wow. Okay, and then when people argue about, like, oh, there's no life in the universe, it's like, come on, can you be more realistic, please? It's gotta uh, be somewhere. Anyway, so 
the Hubble telescope can see pretty far, can see lots of different things. So they push the Hubble telescope, and I'm quoting NASA, to its limits. <laughs> um, and what they decided to do was kind was find, um, well, I don't want to say find. What they did was they kind of knew this galaxy, GNZ11, was probably most likely the farthest galaxy known to us right now in the universe. Um, so what they were going to measure was the red shift of the galaxy to figure out how far away it was. And they is put, that what redshift means? Just how far away it is from us? So they can measure based on light fluctuations, and those light fluctuations are produced by just the, um, how do I want to say this? Let me, I should have wrote down all my terms. Yeah, it's the displacement of spectral lines towards longer wavelengths. So it's due to like radiation and just like the waves that galaxies produce, right? So that's called redshift. So kind of like in the same way that like you can use the light to figure out what elements a planet's made of from far away? Yeah, exactly. So okay. the redshift can, based on the measurements of um, how frequently that occurs, because it kind of occurs like, like waves in a body of water right mm -hmm. like you drop a pebble in water and the waves come out um is that called doppler too is that the doppler effect the doppler effect is when the sound gets sound? altered because it's traveling at different waves like from the distance to you yeah but is doppler is doppler purely sound or is it also the movement that is i'm not sure okay well anyway hmm. we're real scientists um, <laughs> we well, are not experts, people. We we're just not like experts. reading. <laughs> I know. So anyway, they can measure the red shifts on and the frequency of the red shifts to figure out how far away these galaxies are. So I'm going to leave NASA and just go back to this article. So this article wanted to review and solidify how old this galaxy might be, right? Mm -hmm. So Hubble before kind of estimated it to be at um eight it had a redshift of 8.68 that's translated into 13.2 billion years in the past a billion billion 13 sorry 13 billion 13 billion so the big bang uh -huh. happened around 13.8 billion years ago now, that's like a small dif difference, obviously, on the scale of billions, but it's right. a huge, it's still a huge period of time, um, but it's, it's really, really close. So they, they were reinforcing some new estimates saying that the distance has changed a little bit by a couple hundred million years old. Um, mm -hmm. So they used a telescope, they remeasured kind of the redshift. Um, so what they did was just kind of reinforcing this distance, right? Mm -hmm. So they looked at, because um, the redshift, like you said, produces different chemicals. It produces different type of uh, light signatures as well. So they looked at the ultraviolet light um, and they were able to find some like redshifted chemical signatures from that. Um, so they turned to a ground-based spectrograph, uh, which I guess hadn't been done before. They kind of just used the data right from Hubble. 
um, oh. to, to like figure out the distance. So basically they reinforced it with a different type of technology, which is always good to do in science if you can get multiple technologies to agree on the same thing. Same with software. The more certain you are of your... What the hell did I just try to say? The more certain you are in your results. Yes. The more certain you are in your results. <laughs> so, <laughs> if... Bas- basically, to kind of ruin the punchline, we were pretty accurate the first time. So, oh. the farthest detectable galaxy from us is 13.4 billion light years away. That's GNZ11. Right. That's 134 non... Lillian, non Ilian, sorry, 134 non Ilian kilometers. How big is that? In terms of like putting the number of zeros behind 134, how many zeros are there? Non Ilian? Non Ilian. I know a billion is 12 zeros. Yeah. To add, there's like over 20. Or something. <laughs> That's such a huge number. There's 30 zeros. Okay, 30 zeros. That's so it, just... It's a little okay. far. I mean, you know... Oh, it's a little far. Okay. Just a little far away. Um, definitely kind of an overnight trip to get there. <laughs> sure. So, that is confirming the farthest distance from the galaxy that is 13.4 billion light years away and it is estimated that the Big Bang happened at 13.8. So this galaxy formed very... It's... Like, like geologically speaking, very soon yep, after the Big Bang entirely. Like, it's huge. So to go on to the significance of why that's important. Uh, so as we've talked about in the past, like fossils, the fossil record, your love of dinosaurs, we all know that. See. Uh, we hopefully in the future obviously our technology is a little more limited now to kind of figure out where this sign where this galaxy will bring us but basically it's a fingerprint closer to the big bang and what that produced and things like galaxies when they formed and how they formed and what they're made of so it's just kind of cumulating all these ideas into one product which is so cool um yeah it's how do how, so, I, how do i finish this i don't know my conclusion <laughs> for this conversation go ahead you were gonna ask a question i just so my my idea of the big bang is that it's not really like it's the best guess of what we think happened back then but like it's not like a done deal that it actually happened like that would you say that this is evidence towards the point that just there was a big explosion and then at the epicenter just all these galaxies popped out is this evidence to that or against it i from reading the article which i can tell you was really thick and Mm -hmm. it i glazed over a lot because it's a lot of numbers and a lot of equations um this wasn't about proving either this was kind of just confirming the distance Um, and then that distance we end up with all other sort of mathematical models can be used to argue things like that i'm sure um Mm. let me yeah 
I can send you the article. It's just like you look at it and you get really sad because it's all <laughs> it's all numbers and just abbreviations, and you're like, hmm. For I... anyone wanting to get into astronomy, it is entirely <sighs> numbers. I know. I wish I had more of a math brain, or I wish I had developed my math brain more when I was younger, so I could understand this. But I cannot. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around those thirty zeros. So you know, same boat there. So it says in the abstract, it's ultraviolet lines, talking about the GNZ11 galaxy, probably originally from dense ionized gas that is rarely seen at r- low red shifts. And it, it's strong C3, and C3 emission is partly due to an active galactic nucleus or enhanced carbon abundance. And then they go to say that GNZ11 is luminous and young yet moderately massive, implying a rapid buildup of stellar mass in the past. So this is kind of cool. This is, I kind of forgot about this part. It's saying that it's taken the products of the Big Bang and I guess developed a a new galaxy from it. So I think in terms of what you were asking of, does this prove that galaxies just kind of like popped into existence after the Big Bang? Not quite prove, but like support. Yeah, support, sorry. It supports, um, what did I just say? I'll re-say that sentence so I don't sound like an idiot. (laughs) It kind of supports, it supports what you were saying in that there's still an argument there about whether they popped into existence or whether they kind of developed in this way by taking just the still original products from the Big Bang and creating these galaxies all over. So what I imagine is the convenience of having all this stuff in a galaxy is it's in one spot. You don't have to go around the universe chasing different ions and different elements. It's kind of there, and hopefully Mm -hmm. in the future they'll be able to get more data on the chemical makeup to figure, you know, what are some of the oldest particles, what are some of the newest particles, if there's any new particles there, and compare that Mm -hmm. with, you know, what's relative to us, which would be our galaxy. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. It just Hubble, Hubble telescope, man, can do some amazing things. And it's just out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people, but it's just one of those things that is just unfathomable. And that's what I love about space science is (laughs) they cross the boundaries of what is easy to contemplate no existential crisis here no not at all uh here's one though i remember watching uh this documentary on black holes by nova which was horribly animated but still really cool um there is some pretty strong evidence at this point to say that there is a supermassive black hole at the center of every galaxy yeah like the milky way the one that you just talked about just massive black holes many more times the weight of our sun in Um, every galaxy there and that's just yeah, I'm sorry. Go, go, go. No, no, that's it. I'm just, I'm scared. Wait. That's it. I need to find it. Um, so black holes, obviously their their gravity is just immense, but yeah. it is possible for them to get rid of all the energy that they absorb. And there was an article recently published about that. Um, it says, researchers identify where giant jets from black holes discharge their energy. And it says, new study oh. determines that black holes discharge the energy in their plasma jets much farther away from the black hole center than previously thought. 
resolving long-standing debate and offering clues to jet formation and structure. So black holes are, are definitely scary beasts, but they have jets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, this is messing with my head, now I need to, to say the least. Jesus Christ. Cool. That was a really cool article. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, your turn. Cool. Uh, so this article is called Spiders in Space, Orb-Web-Related oh, yeah. Behavior in Zero Gravity. Um, this was published on t- December 3rd into uh, the Science of Nature, uh, formerly a German journal called Naturwissenschaften, which is just a fun word I wanted to say. Um, if I had to change the title of this paper, I would just call it Space Spiders, because why would that not be grabby enough? Um, okay, you ready? Yes. Oh, so I, wait, wait, this... wait, wait, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. If I were to rename my paper, it would just be the 134 with 30 zeros after it. That's it. That's it. That's the name of the paper. And okay. it would go across the entire page. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the paper I did is actually part study, part review, um, and explores the notion that gravity profoundly influences life as we know it in ways that we may or may not expect. Uh, For example, it actually tells plants which way to grow their roots and which way to grow their stems. Mm -hmm. I would have thought it was the presence of soil that does that, but apparently there's experiments that say it's gravity. Um, It does things like dictate the orientation of bumblebees during their informational waggle dances. They always have to stay like a certain orientation from a certain honeycomb. Um, It even makes elephants take the long way around hills instead of just walking over them, because that would put strain on their body. There's actually studies that prove that. So for spiders, there's actually a growing body of evidence that suggests that gravity is at least partly responsible for the extreme difference in size that can exist between males and females. This is called the gravity hypothesis, and I don't really have time to get into it. Yeah, so basically there is a sort of spectrum of selective pressure, and in environments where the females have more pressure on them to expand their size to be able to produce more eggs, the females get really, really big. Um, If the environment favors locomotion, then the females stay a diminutive size. For the males, it actually pays for them to be smaller because the females are often located at high up spaces. And so it actually pays for them to be smaller because the males can reach the females faster. There's a pretty small window in which she'll actually mate with anything. So, you know, it pays to be the one first. Um, This was met with a lot of criticism back in the day, but it was refined based on the fact that it's not really like a slope line to which spiders do this it's like a bell curve because certain spiders can bridge where they sort of jet silk out of their butt and fly on the wind with it but because (laughs) of the bridging aspect there's sort of like a bell curve of spiders and size differences but using the tenets of the gravity hypothesis they can put every spider in a sort of line with it which is pretty cool there's really not much evidence to the contrary which is awesome um but that was just a little tangent not actually the subject of this study Um, In relation to this study, gravity influences the behavior of spiders that build vertical orb webs. So orb webs, for you non-spider folks, are the the quintessential spider web in the eyes of humans. Uh, Those are the rounded, mm -hmm. so they're the rounded spirally ones that cover nearly every Halloween decoration in pretty much any spider-focused art. Um, The spiders that build them are unsurprisingly known as orb weavers. And the ways that gravity influences their webby end product has been studied for decades. Um, The most obvious gravity-induced detail of an orb web is the position of the hub, where the spider sits in wait for prey to get snagged. It is always, in a vertical web, positioned near the top. 
and some pretty solid evidence suggests that this is because spiders can run down the web faster than up. So, being seated higher in the web means the spider has a good chance to subdue prey in either direction. Um, this is also supported by the fact that spiders and their hubs are nearly always facing downwards to catch that really far away prey, um, which is thought to be for the same reason, ease of prey capture. Eventually, scientists on this line of thought started wondering how spider behavior is affected by gravity during the web building process. And to do this, the forces acting on spiders would have to be experimentally altered. So these alterations began with the much easier adding of force. This was initially done by gluing tiny weights to spiders. But, wait. They, they glued... <laughs> there, has, there has to be pictures of this. I was too... <laughs> I was too flabbergasted to look. Um, there are very Glued mixed results. <laughs> weights. These... The gluing weight experiment started in the 30s, I think, so not quite experimental integrity in that regard. But, uh... Okay. You find a picture? Uh... Nothing? Because it gets way worse. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so, another pair of science... Oh, so the, um, the gluing tiny weights, understandably, because you're gluing weights to spiders, had very mixed results depending on who was running the study. Because why would they think that a spider would act normally with weights on it? Yeah. Um... Another pair of scientists had spiders spin their webs inside a running centrifuge, which increases the gravitational force of anything on the inside. Um, in this experiment, web structure began to change significantly at about 3.5 Gs, or 3.5 times the normal pull of gravity. Hold up. How? Yes. So uh, they asked the spider to build a web while spinning? In a centrifuge, yep. And it did. It did build a web. Um, but wow. at about 3.5 Gs, they started to notice a difference. Spiders are crazy, man. I, that's, that's the one answer I have do for you. Do they not get dizzy? They probably do. Um, and that was probably evidenced by the fact that at 3.5 Gs, the web started to look very mangled and asymmetrical. Um, <laughs> yes, like, it, 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 it definitely did, starting at 3.5 times the gravity. Isn't there more things acting on this spider than just gravity when you're spinning it in a centrifuge? Not really, no. um, unless the dizziness aspect, which I didn't think about before this. But yeah, probably why uh, no one ever did that again past a couple times. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, still, other scientists wanted to know more, but uh, these guys wanted to reduce the effects of gravity, which is a far more difficult task. Um, you can try and force the spiders to build their webs horizontally to see how gravity affects that, but most orb weavers outright refused to. Um, and they wrote that because obviously a lot of scientists tried. Yeah. Um, some scientists got around this by having webs built inside a clinostat, which is a fancy little apparatus that can be sort of moved and rotated at will. It's kind of like a movable gyroscope. Um, these continuous rotations resulted in some very deformed webs. <laughs> so the bottom line is that gravity, to some degree, is definitely important in proper web design. Um, this naturally led to the question of whether webs could, webs could be built in zero gravity, which would require Thanks. spiders to go where no spider had gone before. In a plane. Space. Oh, in space. <laughs> space. So this, this this was awful. Um, the first time oh, spiders no. were sent to space was in July of 1973 and was basically a complete disaster. Um, in an experiment designed by a high schooler uh, in the what? NASA... What? So I'm not going to say this is their fault because they did not put the spider in space. They did not... Okay, that's uh, so, fair. So... Um, in, yeah, so in this competition, two orb weavers were brought up into Sky Lab to weave their webs. And they did build webs. 
but only five of the webs were actually photographed, and none were complete pictures. Also, the experimenters didn't think to provide food or water to the spiders, at least in adequate amounts. So while the webs were clearly different, it could have very well been because the spiders were starving. They forgot to feed the spiders. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> don't know how they would... But also, it didn't seem like they had any control back on Earth, so how would you know that the spiders were building differently? It could have just been that they were shot up into freaking space. Yeah, and um, petrified. But yeah, yeah. So, but the fact remains that spiders were able to build webs in zero gravity. So the failed experiment didn't completely extinguish interest. So in 2008, uh, another group of scientists tried again. This time, bringing two, two species of orb weaver above the, uh, uh, not above, into the ISS or International Space Station. Yeah. This time, a self-sustaining colony of fruit flies was brought along. So, you know, the spiders could eat. Um... I'm not entirely sure of the logic behind bringing two different species of orb weaver, uh, which were Metapeira labyrinthia and Larinioides patagiatus, but the decision to bring two orb weavers in general was a failsafe, uh, so the other could be used if the other didn't survive. Right, the older and the same species. I so this study actually went unpublished, and you're about to hear why. So I couldn't oh. ask that question, but okay. yeah, why didn't they just bring two of the same species? Um, so the older M. labyrinthia was placed in an experimental viewing chamber, while the younger spider was placed in an adjacent uh, but blocked-off holding chamber. However, the younger spider somehow escaped into the viewing chamber with the older one. It just got into it. Somehow. They didn't know how. Okay. Um, they didn't need each other, so still the ex uh, decision was made to proceed as normal. Lights were left on for 12 hours a day, and pictures of webs were taken every 5 minutes and 17 seconds, along with some video. Um, and after six days, both spiders went from randomly laying down silk to actual web building. So the end products appeared to be irregular and yet still functional. They were still sticky. Uh, they put down a sticky spiral as the final product, and that worked. Um, but since the spiders were housed together, the building of one's web often destroyed the others. Oh, no. Um, and, and <laughs> the co-having issue made photos useless, as the resolution was too low to distinguish between the two species. Oh. Oh my gosh. And then, and then, as the final nail in the coffin, the fruit fly population exploded during week two. They were able to freely enter the viewing chamber, so the view inside became obscured by fruit flies starting at the two-week mark. By a month, it was completely covered. They couldn't see Gross. inside at all. Gross. Um, so the experiment had to be scrapped and went unpublished until this current paper. So two tries. Wow. <laughs> they did not get usable data. They knew the spiders were building webs, but they didn't know why they were different. They didn't know how they were different because they couldn't use the data. That's really annoying. And, like, I sympathize with people planning on going to space that there are very minor things you might overlook. Yeah. But, I mean, like, this was terrible. <laughs> mm -hmm. But and even more so the first one. There's only so much you can do, right? So, yeah. I, it's fine. It's fine. And they right. learned what not to do the next time, right? That's science, yes. too. They did. Um, granted, there is no excuse for not feeding the damn spiders, but everything else I agree with. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so, and that, uh, with that, we have arrived at attempt number three. Okay. Uh, the primary focus of this paper. So, in 2011, spiders were once again sent to the International uh, Space Station, this time with two specimens of golden orb weaver, which is the species Trichonophila clavi clavipes? Clavipes. 
clavis i hate latin i love latin um either way they have a weird scientific name it translates to uh lover of weaving hair neat yeah um so the weavers were raised from a collected egg sack uh from from a university so they were caught locally um in and kept in identical what the hell am i trying to say okay so they got four orb weavers they took two into space and they kept two on earth Okay. And they raised them in otherwise identical conditions, exposed them to the same experimental apparatus. So everything was controlled except for being in space, right? This sounds like a proper scientific experiment. Okay, go on. Yes, it was. It seemed like, again, I couldn't read the other study because they didn't publish it, but it didn't sound like they had controls back on Earth for the other two. Okay. Um, which is, again, why? But yeah. So reading the methods, it was pretty clear that the authors, like you said, had learned from past blunders. Uh, the spiders were housed in separate viewing chambers, and the fruit fly feeders were reconfigured with multiple chambers to prevent the view blocking issue. Uh, lights were again on for 12 hours a day, and one enclosure from each group was bathed in infrared light every night, which animals can't usually see, um, so observations could be made. With all the extra precautions in place, space spider attempt number three was officially underway. So, wild orb weavers build asymmetrical webs. This is thought to be influenced by gravity. Yeah. Um, so the scientists predicted that the hub would be placed randomly in the space webs or in the web center because they don't have gravity as a tick. Um, the spiders themselves would orient themselves randomly uh, instead of always facing downwards, oh, cool. which is not efficient for prey capture on Earth, but maybe in space. Yeah. So this, so this is what they predicted. Um, by the end of the experiment, around 130,000 total pictures would tell them if their predictions were correct. That's, that's um, efficient. I like indeed. that number. Not, indeed. Not non-alien pictures. That would be more impressive, <laughs> but, you know. Becca, I wouldn't fit the zeros on my script. Like, that just wouldn't work. Um, Can you imagine the databanks you would need to take uh, that many photos? Oh, boy. Uh, more than I can afford right now. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> so, and I apologize for dog barking again. So, spiders uh, would be compared for web asymmetry, which, again, was predicted to be reduced. Uh, regularity or normalness, or basically if they didn't look messed up or not, um, the typical orientation of the spider, and a few other behaviors. So, first up, regularity. Okay. Results in this area were, as expected, the zero-g webs were a lot less normal on average than earth webs. The normalness actually declined over time for both groups, but this was likely due to silt buildup on the walls over time. Um, in the elements, when a spider has a really good web-building spot, rain and wind will wash the old product away, so yeah. if that doesn't happen... Uh, but this time it did. They declined in the same ways, so they assumed that to be sort of like a little mishap in their experiments. So it wasn't really telling. Um, next, the degree of asymmetry. So the zero-gravity webs were very variable, um, though on average more symmetrical than Earth webs overall. However, a more in-depth analysis revealed another oddity. In zero-gravity webs started... In, in zero-gravity, webs started after the lights turned off were very symmetric. But some webs started with the lights on showed the much more typical asymmetry for the species. So, first weird thing. Um, the Earth spiders built their standard asymmetric webs whether the lights were on or off. Next up, space spider orientation. Um, like asymmetry, first appeared to be quite random, just looking at all the data as a whole. Mm -hmm. But again, upon closer inspection, light again was shown to influence behavior. So the random orientation happened only when the lights were off. When turned on, the spiders instead face downwards like normal. So, what does this all mean? It means that these results were only partly supported. Um, the, uh, the, their initial prediction that gravity is crucial. Seeing as space webs were, on average, less normal uh, and less a a asymmetric, but surprisingly, 
in the absence of gravity, the spiders instead were found to rely on light to guide their building and orientation. So this strongly suggests that while gravity normally has the most influence on web building behavior, it's not the only influence. If light had no effect at all, then space spider behavior would not have been completely different in darkness. That's so. so Wait. Yeah. Just repeat something for me. So, in in the dark was when they produced the asymmetrical webs. So for ore weavers or this species of ore weaver, asymmetrical is the norm. So the webs became okay. more symmetrical yeah. when the lights were off. Okay, gotcha. Wow. So yeah, light has this crazy influential degree on orb weaver web building that no one actually knew about until the study. That's cool. But but does that only come into play because of the lack of gra gravity? Because you It does. It's only when they lost gravity and had no access to light that the webs became truly weird. Oh, weird. Yeah. Crazy, right? Um, but yeah, so Finally, the author speculated on why light might serve as a secondary cue for spiders. After all, we can co pretty confidently say that no spiders would ever naturally experience zero gravity conditions in the wild. Um, one reason could be that there's always a chance that an animal's gravity sensors might fail, so it would be good for spiders to have a backup webbing cue should this occur. The second possibility is that a spider's gravity sensors are believed to rest between its head and abdomen, in sort of that little midsection, um, and they can actually register movement between the two sections of their body. Um, a spider's position and orientation change constantly during web building, so to avoid a processing overload, light may serve as an additional orientation cue when present. Because these orb weavers mostly build their webs at night, but obviously this shows they can sometimes build their webs during the day as well. So, how does, like, do spiders see light the way we see light? Or what is their, what are their rods and cones? I should have looked that up. Um, okay. like how, there is yeah, a lot of debate on how much spiders can actually see, and it's being challenged by things like jumping spiders, which are shown to have crazy powerful vision. Um, no one expected this at all. Um, it was kind of like scientific dogma in, in the spider world that light had really no effect at all because people just assumed that the orb waivers always built their webs at night. But this sort of accidental finding showed them that no, that's not always the case. Does that answer your question? Kind of. I'm just blown away. That's like, one, someone actually brought spiders into space, which sounds like a bad <laughs> senior prank type of joke. It um, really does. <laughs> that kind of tick not ticked me off, but like that put me over the put me over the edge. I was like, what? They did that? They paid money to do that? Second, I am coming to terms with gravity being so important in our lives and the i'm not going to tangent on this but immediately i thought about fish because being in water is a little bit different so mm -hmm. how does that affect their normal things and yes we should totally bring fish to space in these <laughs> aquariums third interesting the light and gravity relationship is a relationship i never would have guessed and it sounds like i'm Neither. not alone in that which is like really cool no yeah this was completely unexpected on behalf of the scientists and me and pretty much everyone else who read this it was crazy okay so significant i mean like it's cool but obviously it does it doesn't impact the life of spiders on earth right 
Well, no, it's not significance as far. This is kind of like a general, like the value is the general pursuit of knowledge in my eyes. This is yeah, like a I thing agree. that we totally now know. Yeah. Yes. That um, we never would have known before. <laughs> exactly. So no, there's no like medical significance. There's no like, this is not going to change the world for anybody, but it was a really cool thing that no. was found out totally you know by what? accident. In a couple hundred, maybe thousands of years when we're repopulating planets and we need to transport spiders, this paper is going to be relevant in their care during <laughs> transport through space. Yes. I'm saying it out loud now, so I want to be quoted on this <laughs> in a couple thousand years. Of course, of course. The great Rebecca Purchase. Yeah. Um, ooh, there were a couple extra bits, too, as well, which I only found because I double-checked all the uh, graphs and everything. They only mentioned this once for some reason, but the astronauts who cared for the spiders, they actually named them, which was really cute. Oh, what did um, so, so the spiders were named Gladys and Esmeralda. Oh. Um, even though Gladys actually turned out to be a male, um, the goal of the study was to have all female spiders, but spiders, especially younger spiders, are notoriously hard to sex. Okay. But it kind of worked out anyway, because another one of the females turned out to be a male as well. So you had a male and female in space and a male and female on land. Oh, good. Did, yeah. Um, why they choose, I guess we should maybe stop asking these kind of questions, but just for length of time. Um, so w did the age of the spider matter? The spiders were both from the same, same egg sac, all of them. So they're oh, all the same cool. age. Okay, gotcha. They all hatched at the same that's, time. That's cool. All right. Mm -hmm. they, they, they also set a couple records as well. Um, so one of the Earth spiders, uh, oh, sorry, I already mentioned that. So the authors made a point of noting that both Gladys and Esmeralda set new space spider records, which is not that hard because they were the third <laughs> time, but, you know, it's still admirable. Yeah. So Gladys spent a total of 65 days in space and even made it back to Earth safely. Aww. Um, Esmeralda unfortunately died in space, but she did put down a record number of 34 webs during her space gravity tenure. Wow. That's more than any spider's done so far. That's cool. Indeed. Um, and both spiders actually molted at least twice in space. Uh, two molt for Gladys and three for Esmeralda, which is the first evidence that spiders are actually capable of molting repeatedly in space. So again, to your cool. space spider husbandry, they can molt in space. Great. Yep. Yeah. So when mm -hmm. we're transporting spiders and maybe other types of, or other species of arachnids, then this is going to be relevant. Indeed. And thank you so much, Gladys and Esmeralda, for your space spider service. And yes, your selfless sacrifice, even though it wasn't <laughs> your choice. We apologize for that part. Well, you never know. Maybe a spider's dream of space. Maybe. Probably not. <laughs> I'm sure they, I wonder if they have sent fish to space. How cool would that be, though? Because you can just have a ball of water floating around. That is exactly what it. popped into my mind as you were saying that earlier. Yeah. I just imagine like a like a like a, a windowless aquarium, just a ball of water with a fish in it, floating floating through the chamber. Yeah, it's a fun concept. You all you need is like saran wrap, not even like a glass aquarium. You know <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, uh, one more fun fact to end this episode. Okay. Do you know the first animals uh, to make it to the moon and back? They didn't land on the moon, but it was a round trip. Um, it was i think i do know this i'm really thinking hard hold on <laughs> the classic ones that we obviously know over like dogs and monkeys to go to space and come back mm -hmm. actually I think it's not those some monkeys died in space um, definitely yes yes any ideas 
Ah, uh, I do know this. Part of me wants to say turtle, but I don't think it's a turtle. It is. It was a pair of Russian tortoises. Yes, I was right. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. I was like, in my gut, turtle comes to mind. Yep. So, oh, nice. Okay, cool. Yep. Uh, the Soviet Union in, I think, 1968 or 9 sent a pair of Russian tortoises to the moon and back. Nice. I don't know why. They actually both made it back alive, which was nice. Great. Um, but yeah. Love it. Also, mm-hmm. Russia had no qualms with sending a woman to space for the first time. They were like, yeah, sure, like, she's totally capable. Whereas the United States had so much beef with women, even women disagreed women should go into space. And that makes me so mad. Anyway. We're like that one country that always talks up how great they are, but then you look even a little closer and it's like, really? We are the flaming straight man of this world. (laughs) Okay. Uh, in the... <laughs> anyway. In the interest of not getting shut down by the government, we should probably stop there. Probably. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you good... for your article, Becca. Yeah. Yes. Thanks, Jared. Oh, man. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. I hope this episode comes out close to when um, the Perseverance rover is going to be landing on Mars. So I will we'll try my darndest to make that happen. Okay. Yeah, Thanks. definitely. Thanks. All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.